Welcome to California Groundbreakers, a place that sets trends, starts movements, and shakes up how things are done around the world. We're inviting interesting people doing innovative things to sit down and talk with us about how they're asking and answering the big questions facing all Californians. Our goal is to inspire change across the state, one conversation at a time. Tonight, we're doing a Groundbreakers Q&A with the two men in charge of Sacramento schools. They're both new to Sacramento. This is their first year on the job. They're in charge of Sacramento City's public schools and 101-year-old community college. And now they're starting to put their stamp on how education is handled in the classrooms. Join us for a discussion with Jorge Aguilar, the new superintendent of the Sacramento City Unified District, and Michael Gutierrez, the new president of the Sacramento City College, as they talk about schooling Sacramento students, their future plans and how they're going to roll them out, what they've learned their first year on the job, and how they're working together to make sure kids go from pre-K to all the way to good paying jobs. So hi everyone, welcome to California Groundbreakers. We're a civic engagement organization based here in Sacramento, the capital. And we're focusing on innovators doing groundbreaking things around the state of California. And my name is Vanessa Richardson. I'm the executive director of the California Groundbreakers. Uh, the goal of our organization is to put on what we call cocktail conversations. And they're basically uh, events that focus on topics and issues happening here locally in Sacramento, regionally in Central Valley in Northern California, and statewide, trying to make them relatable and relevant to you as a voter, as a taxpayer, as a consumer, and as a citizen of California. And we try to make them fun by having wine, cocktails, whatsoever. Tonight, we're holding a Groundbreakers Q&A with the men in charge of Sacramento schools. The reason why this event happened was I was just reading random uh, interviews, I guess, with one of the gentlemen in Sacramento News and Review uh, who started at City College in July. Uh, and then I saw that the superintendent of the Sacramento City Unified School District had started around the same time. And I knew that they were probably being brought on to and not shake things up, move the schools forward. And I thought it was very interesting. They both are new to Sacramento, and they were both brought in around the same time to make some major changes. So I thought it'd be very interesting to talk to them about the tasks that they have uh, to run the city of Sacramento's public schools, uh, the oldest community college, which I think is 101 years old now, and what they're doing, what new innovative ways they're coming up with to educate the students, see them through graduation, and probably get them prepared to take on those 21st century jobs that involve STEM skills um, and, and, and have them be successful. So I know at the beginning of the year, you probably had a look, watch, listen, observe uh, uh, stance. You're going to see what was going to happen before rolling anything out right away. But a lot has happened this past year uh, in education in general, both here in Sacramento and around the nation, that you both have probably have had to take action on, speak out on. So I think there's been a lot of uh, things that we've already seen you in action about. So tonight we're going to take a look at Sacramento schools, where they stand now, what's their future, and how these two gentlemen intend to steer them forward. 
I also, before we start talking, I'd like to give some special thanks to a few people who helped make this event possible. Uh, Sharon Wilson, who uh, co-owns Antiquity Midtown, that's the event venue where we're at this evening. I wanna say special thanks. She helped make this event possible. Um, so I wanted to give her a special thanks. Also to Alex Barrios and Pamela Morrison for their help with putting this event together. Uh, our volunteer extraordinaire, Alan Young, who's here uh, helping me with the event, as well as Nicole, who is checking us in. She is one of our board of directors for California Groundbreakers. So thank you, Nicole. I also want to thank, of course, the panelists for taking time out of your busy schedule, and to you, the audience, for taking time out of your schedule as well to be here. The event is about 30 to 30 minutes or so of me doing the moderated questions, and then we'll take audience questions at the mic. The first question I always ask panelists is uh, a little tell us about yourself um, question, so we know a little about you beyond the, the title. So besides your name, obviously, and your title, I wanted to ask you where you came from before, what was the past position you had before you took on your current role? And on a personal note, since you're both new to Sacramento, what is one thing about Sacramento, the city, that you have found notable, interesting, or surprising since you moved here last year, I guess last summer? So let me start with the gentleman on my left. Great. Uh, well, first, uh, thank you everyone for being here and taking some time out of your busy days. Uh, to come listen to both Michael and me. Uh, Vanessa's right, we both uh, came from out of town right around the same time. We met soon after July and began to talk about how to better integrate both of these systems, uh, the K-12 system and the California Community College system. Um, I also wanna thank California Groundbreakers, of course, for the invitation. Um, I'm originally from a small rural community uh, called Parlier. What's your name? Sorry, yeah, it is being... Uh, Jorge Aguilar. Uh, uh, let me make my mother proud, Jorge Alberto Aguilar. Uh, and uh, grew up in a very small rural community, uh, Parlier, California, um, always competing with Mendoza and Fireball as the poorest communities throughout the state of California. Uh, born in Delano, California, um, which uh, means that um, uh, if you're thinking about it, um, I'm the son of immigrants uh, from Mexico. Um, was born in Delano because my parents had just finished uh, picking grapes, uh, the table grape season, which usually ends uh, at the end of September. Um, and didn't realize the significance of having been born in Delano until I arrived uh, to college at UC Berkeley and took a Chicano Studies uh, course um, uh, with uh, Professor Alex Zaragoza and then realized, geez, I mean, I've got to learn about my history. Um, I, um, my former post, uh, it was a dual post, uh, both at UC Merced, uh, where I served as Associate Vice Chancellor uh, for Educational and Community Partnerships, and in a very unique partnership, uh, also served as a, um, Associate Superintendent for Equity and Access at Fresno Unified School District. And I uh, held those positions for um, together uh, since 1998 until 2017. Um, so not someone that has moved in my career a whole lot. Um, in fact, uh, moving to Sacramento was the first time that I uprooted uh, my family. Um, we have four children, uh, all of whom are um, enrolled in Sac City uh, schools. Um, and 
your question about something that's notable, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll just say uh, both um, as a challenge, uh, something that's been um, striking, um, I would say, um, is just um, seeing um, the pace at which uh, gentrification is occurring um, in front of us. Um, Fresno's not a community that has, um, that has seen that, uh, this type of gentrification. Um, and I'll just say, I've said this to our board, we have a board member here, uh, board member Michael Minnick. Um, obviously, I'm not in a role to solve gentrification, but I think uh, we have a duty and an obligation uh, to help mitigate the effects of gentrification um, in a city like Sacramento. Uh, and then, I mean, on the notable front, I, I just, um, uh, how grateful um, I am over the past year or so uh, for um, the grace um, and welcoming um, uh, spirit of this community toward me um, as superintendent and toward my family. And so every time I have the opportunity, I just thank uh, everybody that I come uh, into contact with for, uh, for treating me with such uh, grace and um, welcoming spirit. So thank you. Can you repeat the question? <laughs> uh, your name, so we know who you are, and uh, your current role. Um, what was your past position, I guess, um, and where you came from? And then that, that uh, since you moved to Sacramento, what have you found notable or interesting or distinctive about Sacramento that, that maybe surprised you or delighted you? <laughs> Well, good evening. My name is Michael Gutierrez. I'm the president at Sacramento City College. And again, to reiterate what Jorge just said, thank you to California Groundbreakers. And thanks to all of you for being with us here tonight. And really glad that Jorge is here next to me, because when we first started, they, uh, they would ask me, well, you know, who are you? I'm like, I'm at Sac City College. And they're like, oh, uh, you're Jorge, right? And I'm like, mm. they're like, you've Gained a little bit of weight since the last time I saw you. <laughs> when I first moved here 10 months ago, my previous job uh, will tell you a whole lot about myself uh, in, in terms of personality. I, I was the uh, uh, executive vice president for academic affairs and student success at Eastfield College and had been vice president there for a little over eight and a half years. And when I got to Eastfield, the college had been put on warning status by the accrediting agency for the second time in a five-year period. The president and the vice president had been fired. I was the fifth vice president in a four-year period, and the president that was named as an interim was the fourth president in a five-year period. And when uh, I was a division dean at a sister college, and when they asked me, you know, you're, why are you going to Eastfield? That's a career killer. Uh, for me, my antennas just went up, and, and it was just uh, being told what I had always been told uh, all my life. And, and uh, Because when I had gotten the dean's job, uh, the, uh, uh, they had not had a division dean in 10 years. And um, the uh, division had been run by faculty on, they were teaching full-time, full-load, and on two uh, extra service contracts, they were essentially the dean, and they weren't there in the summer. So you can imagine the erosion that had taken place within that division. There were no internet courses in the entire division. And this had government, history, sociology, courses that really should have internet courses. So these types of jobs really excited me. And uh, where I grew up in South San Antonio, when I was a freshman, 
10% of the high school seniors were going to college, any college. We uh, had had a, uh, uh, one of my classmates actually murdered the librarian's daughter uh, during that time period. And uh, so there was a lot of, we had the longest losing streak in San Antonio football history. The, college, the high school was open in 1952, had never had a playoff team in any sport. And so uh, as a junior, uh, the basketball team that was on, that I was on, uh, did make the high school playoffs for the first time in our school's uh, history. You know, by the time I graduated from high school, uh, our college-going rate had gone up to 47%, which isn't great, right? But coming from where it was, uh, highly respectable. Uh, and you know, if you know anything about San Antonio during that time period, there was a rivalry between the South Side and the North Side. And you know, I grew up in a neighborhood that is a historic neighborhood, a very old neighborhood. And my parents uh, had a septic tank. And why is that important? Uh, because a mile down the road, the wastewater treatment plant was there, and everybody in my neighborhood wasn't even connected to it. And the reason why we weren't is because the people in the neighborhood were told because, uh, because the people didn't want it. Okay, so really spunky, really feisty coming out of the South Side. And so when people tell me again, you can't, it's a career killer to go to Eastfield College, that kind of gives you a perspective as to why I was really inspired to go to Eastfield College. And so when I come to Sac City College, it's really great to be uh, at a, in an environment at a college where it's not uh, a fixer-upper, right? Where there, it's, a, it's, it's got a long-standing tradition and it's a college that's doing really well and it's, a great, it's great to be uh, a part of, of Los Rios and, and Sacramento City College. And, and what has hit me about uh, Sacramento, the parking spaces are much smaller. <laughs> when I go to restaurants, the portion sizes are a lot smaller. And one thing about Sacramento that's really different is that uh, we take our ice cream very seriously here. Very, right? Vicks, Gunther's, which one is it? And since I live in Lamb Park, it's Vicks. <laughs> I'm in Curtis Park, so it's Gunther's. Uh, and Eastfield College is where? Eastfield College is uh, specifically in Mesquite, Texas, which is about 15 minutes from downtown Dallas and is part of the Dallas County Community College District. And it is uh, about 42 years old now, and it has about 16,000 students, 4,000 of which are dual credit students. It has five early college high schools, and uh, two of them which are uh, career technology. Uh, early one's an early college high school, the other one's a Pathways to Technology High School. All right, thank you both. So I, I did my research on, on both of you and, and uh, uh, Sacramento City Unified School District. I should... Uh, give full disclosure, I started in January as a part-time librarian at Ethel Phillips uh, Elementary School, which is in North City Farms, Go Dragons. So I, yes, I started as a reading partner's tutor. Rachel Minnick is there in the audience, and then they asked me. So, <laughs> so it was good training, and uh, so I, it's only part-time 15 hours a week, but I do get a good sense of, at least a little sense of how the schools run, how the kids are great. Um, so I want to, yeah, I want to give a shout out to Ethel Phillips and uh, um, 
so, but basically, I wanted to ask both of you a, a kind of a the background questions based on what I've read uh, about you and your and your personal histories. So, Jorge, you had mentioned UC Berkeley, and I think there was a story in the Sacramento Bee, uh, Marcus Breton, the columnist you spoke with, and it was interesting about when you your first day at starting chemistry class at UC Berkeley was kind of a uh, a very momentous day and one that could have gone one way or the other, but it went a certain way. I wanted to ask you about that day at UC Berkeley. And also in that article, you, you, you were with Marcus in Par Parlier and you were looking back at your class of fellow classmates and you made some comments about where you were compared to where they were. So I was curious to see, you know, you made it to UC Berkeley and you made it to where you are now. What do you think you had or what helped you get to where you are compared to where you may have been, you know, so if that makes sense. Sure, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> yeah, you know, when um, Marcos asked me that question, um, um, I reflected back to uh, that experience at uh, Cal, um, and the point that I was trying to make as it relates to sort of our current vision around advancing equity, access, and social justice for our students uh, was simply that um, I ended up attending a University of California um, as a result of having met um, individuals that helped me steer uh, toward a UC uh, campus, uh, having attended a leadership conference, the Chicano Latino Youth Leadership Project here uh, as an incoming senior, and there's the Ruedas um, who have known me since I was 17 years old um, in the audience. Um, and, and the fact that um, even as a salutatorian in my high school going to Cal, uh, I had intended to be an oceanographer, you know, enter the hard sciences, and uh, what I was describing to Marcos was that um, I realized in my first class at Cal, which was a chemistry class, that I couldn't even follow the professor who was outlining our syllabus. Um, and uh, just the realization uh, that I had uh, been the product of a public education system that while I was, of course, very proud of, uh, had not prepared me for the rigors of an education uh, of a research one, uh, research A university. Um, and that, um, you know, there's no way that I was gonna give up and drop out of Cal. And uh, like many uh, of, of my friends, uh, we uh, went into the social sciences. Of course, nothing against the social sciences. I'm proud of my social sciences degrees. Um, but the point that I was making is that um, um, from an equity, access, and social justice perspective, um, I um, decided that I would um, advance my career uh, by ensuring that students had access to a rigorous uh, curriculum and rigorous instruction so that those who chose to attend uh, selective colleges and universities or went through the community college system didn't find themselves in the situation that I found myself and that in fact um, I still haven't um, convinced anyone to write their dissertation on this topic but just my instinct uh, that for many underrepresented 
um, and educationally disadvantaged students, uh, we are caught in that situation of wanting to pursue the hard sciences and then um, graduating with a social science degree. Um, and again, that's not a criticism uh, to the social sciences, uh, but it was just a reflection point for me uh, that it was something that I would not want to uh, see others experience. Um, and um, it's obviously what, what's driving our work today, um, that uh, we um, are committed to giving uh, our students uh, an equal opportunity to graduate with the greatest number of post-secondary choices from the widest array of options. And um, that I don't believe uh, that our students should be in a situation where they can't advance um, uh, any career that they choose uh, because we haven't prepared them for uh, the rigors of uh, the next uh, segment of education that they um, enroll at. All right, thank you. And then with Michael, I, I did want to ask you about community college. Um, so you went to, to Princeton, so you went to a pretty good school, and then you have spent most of your career in education, with community college level. So I had a two-part question for you. Uh, well, how many years have you worked, I mean, you said Eastfield, another, the total tally of years of working with or for community colleges has been more or less? 23 years. 23 years. So I was wondering over that time, have you seen the public's view and opinion of community colleges change, if at all? I think at least when I was a student, community college was seen as, okay, it's an inexpensive way to get credits and go up to a UC, or it just is like, oh, you know, if you can't make into, uh, you get your tutor and you try to, to do something. I'm wondering if that has changed, uh, or if it, you know, perception has changed in 23 years. And then also, because you come from Texas, which in, in many ways is similar to California in terms, it's the big state, a lot of students, um, multiple uh, groups, languages spoken in the schools. Um, since you've been here in Sacramento, can you compare and contrast what you've seen in Texas community colleges compared to California. So basically it's like the overall view of community college, has that changed? And then when we look at Texas, California, what do you see as notable comparisons, contrasts? When you look at uh, where community colleges were in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, the focus was on access and building new buildings building new community colleges. In the late 90s, early 2000s, the perception of public policymakers was to scrutinize uh, community colleges a little more because uh, the public monies were drying up. And it was uh, harder for, uh, you had more groups vying for the same amount of money. And so, as we were being scrutinized, we had to then start looking at ourselves a little differently. So it was not just about access anymore. It wasn't just about building new buildings. It was then about access and our students completing. As we move into 2018, we are, uh, completion is not enough. It's really about access and equity. So are the students coming in and then once they're in, are they completing, and regardless of their gender, their background, are they completing at the same levels? And then are they 
fulfilling their goal. That's the next step, which is for most students, they come to Sacramento City College not wanting an associate degree. They actually want one of two things. They either want a job or they want to transfer. And our responsibility isn't for them to complete, but it's to make sure when they get the degree to transfer. Or when they get the degree in an applied program or in a certificate program to get a job. And then for us to find out, once they transfer to UC Berkeley, to Sac State, UCLA, Humboldt State, how well are they doing once they transfer? Because if they're not doing well, that's our responsibility. And we need to work backwards from that to make sure that we're doing our job. And when they get into the workforce, how are they doing once they graduate? How are they doing six months after they graduate? How are they doing one year after they graduate? Are their employers happy with the training, the education and training that they received? That's our responsibility. So inwardly, that's what the perception is of ourselves and how it's changing and evolving. I think that uh, from an outside perspective, it really wasn't until President Obama mentioned on the national stage community colleges. And that's when the perception, I think, nationwide, the view of community college started to change because it's my feeling, and it's not just my feeling, but uh, we are part of the democratization of our country. It's the ability of anybody that wants to be educated, to be trained, regardless of their educational levels, whether they have a high school degree, whether they're valedictorian, whether they didn't graduate, whether they don't know English, they have an opportunity to move into the middle class. And that is what our country is built on, is the middle class, and that's what our community colleges do. Can you repeat the second question? <laughs> I was just curious about Texas versus California because it seems like there's a lot of um, similarities, but also, at least in California, it seems like Texas is a state where a lot of Californians are moving to, businesses mm -hmm. are being taken. And I'm sure there's differences in the way that community colleges are run, but there's also, I'm sure, similarities. So I was just wondering what you have seen with your experience in both states, um, notable similarities, notable differences. Sure, I think uh, one of the common commonalities of California and Texas community colleges is that to advance the agenda, to the advance the agenda of, of access, equity, completion, and post-graduation success, you need the participation of all the stakeholders. That is common across all of higher education. The difference is that uh, we are a union environment here in California, and Texas is a, an at-will state. And so that makes the pace a little differently, a little different. And so uh, the uh, uh, need to involve all the stakeholders still is there, but you just have to go about it a little differently. And, and things might go a little faster in some ways in Texas, but in some ways it goes faster here in California. Uh, another thing that uh, is different is the way the community colleges are funded. In Texas, uh, you have some state funding based on the number of students that you have. Um, there is also um, uh, funding based on completion rates uh, in Texas, but the vast majority of funding comes from local property taxes. And so uh, if you are in the Dallas area, for example, and you raise the 
property taxes by half cent, you get $14 million for the community colleges. If you do that in South Texas and you raise it three cents, you're gonna get about $400,000. So uh, the funding is, is a little different here. It's a, a statewide apportionment that we get and so and tuition, of course. And so uh, I think that makes how we organize ourselves, how we, we uh, structure what we do uh, a little differently. Yes, Proposition 13, that famous proposition that changed the way that schools are funded and you both get to deal with right now. Um, so the next question for both of you is uh, initiatives, uh, things that you're planning to roll out currently and maybe you can reveal to us uh, for the next school year what you're planning to do. So Jorge, you got a lot of credit. I think Sacramento brought you on for the the things that you did at Fresno Unified, boosting the graduation rate and the AG requirements, which I, if I correct me if I'm wrong, are requirements that high school students fulfill to meet requirements at uh, UC and Cal State level. To apply. To apply. Um, so I was wondering, based on your experience there and now after a year uh, at Sac City Unified, um, initiatives that you are that you've recently announced. I think there was one uh, data, a data tracking program, and recently the new expanded learning summer program. I wanted to see if you could talk a little more about that and other initiatives maybe in the next year or so that you can also let us in on. Yes, well, um, <clears throat> you know, there's been a lot of discussion about uh, the work that we did um, in Fresno, but. You know, I immediately, when I got here, said to um, our staff that they should not look to my experience in Fresno to predict what we would do in Sac City. Um, because I do think that it's important to uh, advance our work within our local context. Um, and so I don't think that um, this work of equity, access, and social justice is a cookie cutter um, strategy. Um, and so, um, you know, one of the first things that we announced um, in Sac City is that we would uh, launch a graduation task force um, because there was a lot of concern about the fact that um, Sac City was not producing a graduation rate that was acceptable to our community. Uh, and of course, I agreed um, with, with that assessment. Um, we also um, uh, signed a data sharing agreement uh, with our higher ed partners uh, for many of the reasons that uh, President Gutierrez mentioned. Um, you know, if I were to um, answer a question around what is the future of education reform, uh, obviously I think that there's got to be greater focus in the early learning um, uh, uh, portion of our work. Uh, but I also think that the nexus between K-12 and higher ed is very critical. Um, and um, you know, uh, both President Gutierrez and I, um, currently, uh, the way our segments are set up are not incentivized to work with one another. Uh, we don't get extra funding if we work with the community college system. The community college system doesn't get any form of extra funding if they work closely with the K-12 system. Uh, this is work that relies on goodwill. And um, I've said publicly many times that the challenge with that is that you can't scale goodwill. Uh, that is, um, what happens if President Gutierrez and I don't get along? 
right? Then we don't work together. Uh, and I don't think that there's uh, any reasonable justification for our community uh, to hope that uh, leaders from these segments enjoy working with one another in order to serve our students. Um, so we announced the data sharing agreement um, where we would share information about each other's students uh, for the reasons that he mentioned. Uh, which of our students are eligible to apply to a college or university, but they haven't applied yet? Uh, which of our students who have been admitted to our colleges and universities um, have not registered for courses or have not registered for orientation programs, et cetera? Um, all the way up to how many of our students actually enrolled at the different uh, colleges and universities, and then eventually how many of them uh, found success uh, at any one of those segments. Um, we also announced um, uh, that we would um, launch an elementary athletics program. Um, uh, to me, this was probably one of those notable things that, um, that I also found here uh, in Sac City. Uh, that um, our students did not have access uh, to coordinated sports activities. Um, so we launched an initiative that um, will kick off uh, this next academic year for elementary students to participate in coordinated programs, uh, basketball, football, flag football, uh, running, cross country, um, et cetera. Uh, and then finally, um, that we would also uh, launch an arts initiative uh, at the elementary level. Um, and then the expanded summer learning program that you mentioned, Vanessa, I just wanna uh, see if you can um, accept this argument from me. Uh, what we really launched is a focused approach on grade level readiness. Uh, the idea that um, uh, what I found in Sac City is that um, we had not defined what it meant to be on grade level, uh, sort of reaching grade level proficiency. And I think that that is the number one task of both the superintendent and a board of education, uh, to hold ourselves accountable, uh, to build the right systems, interventions, and everything else to ensure that our students are meeting grade level standards. Um, and because we found that many of our students were not reaching grade level proficiency, uh, we made the decision to invest um, in a program that simply used the summer months for instruction so that students had an opportunity to get closer to grade level proficiency so that when they started the school year next fall, um, they weren't falling behind even further. Um, so I know there's been a lot of attention about the Expanded Learning Summer Program as an initiative, but really it's, the initiative is our commitment to ensuring that our students are reaching grade level readiness and capitalizing on the summer months. Uh, in communities like Sacramento, um, I don't have to tell you all, of um, the uh, very solid research around summer loss and the reality that in many of our families and homes, uh, students will lose academic content and academic knowledge during the summer unless we actually intervene and provide additional supports to them. So uh, we've identified a little over 5,000 students uh, starting in kinder 
uh, third grade, seventh grade, ninth grade, 9, 10, 11, and 12th grade uh, who are not demonstrating grade level proficiency at this time. And we've decided to automatically register them to attend this program uh, through an opt-out philosophy. That is that we've sent letters saying um, your child has been pre-registered for this program. Um, we will have them all day long. We will provide breakfast and lunch. Um, and we are planning for your child to be there unless you tell us that we shouldn't expect them there. Um, and um, this will be an investment that, um, that I think um, will pay off in the long run, uh, which is why we're serving our kinder students. Um, I've said that I'm not an elected official, so I don't have term limits. Um, I uh, get to propose to our board that we should wait uh, for 10 years to see what the benefits are for an investment that we make, for example, in our kinder students. Uh, otherwise, what most of our peers do is they focus on doing summer school programs for our juniors and our seniors, and we just can't break that vicious cycle because we'll never finish intervening at that uh, end of the uh, educational career. And so I think that uh, our Board of Education um, has demonstrated a very firm commitment uh, to invest both on the back end, where we're seeing deficiencies and gaps that our system is producing, uh, but also investing on the front end as early as uh, kindergarten, um, so that we're not waiting until students are at risk of dropping out uh, and um, uh, seeing our system uh, lose uh, more and more students. Well, the opting out really does work because we, we, my daughter received a letter that she had gotten into the program and you know, Catholic guilt sets in, right? Because you have to call and say, no, she can't attend because we're going to be going on a long vacation all the summer. And so it, it really does work. <laughs> and so, Michael, the, a similar question to you in terms of... Uh, I actually remember it this time. Oh, good. All right. <laughs> so, I has not repeat it to you. But no, I will just for, for everyone else who may have forgotten, a similar question about uh, initiatives um, or plans that you have recently announced or are planning to. I did say, I did see one thing I, I haven't gotten yet, but uh, I saw the announcement of the Makerspace uh, that launched on May the 4th, perfect day, uh, at Sac City College, which I guess was funded by the Community of Community College Association, you, maybe that's one thing that is uh, notable, but other things that uh, uh, you're about to roll out or have rolled out and you can tell us about. Sure, and you just mentioned one, which is the, the Makerspace, which we just unveiled, and, and uh, the easiest way to explain it, it's a space like this, it's open, and you have students from different disciplines come in and they make things. They're creative, and it's an incredible concept and it's something that we're really excited about and and to build on that later in the summer we're going to announce a partnership with Apple on uh, anyone can code and it truly is that it's uh, uh, having uh, anyone regardless of age gender uh, whether they completed high school or not to uh, take the swift soft swift language from Apple and and get get on there and, and get to a certain level on your own and when you get to what is the equivalent of a high school graduate in the Swift language, then you come and take the last three courses at Sacramento City College, and then you get an Apple certification, which then makes you eligible to apply as a coder and make about 105K. 
uh, starting. So uh, it's really exciting for us at, uh, at Sac City College, and it's something that uh, we will be also linking with Sac City Unified as well, so that uh, uh, there's a pipeline coming from uh, the high schools to Sac City College. Uh, of course, there's some, some initiatives uh, that are um, starting at the state level where um, we will be introducing uh, multiple measures for student placement. And so currently, in the old system, uh, students that uh, graduated, they would take a test. Uh, many of them not having done anything over the summer, you know, they thaw out, right? And so they come in and, and they come in cold and they place a lot lower than they probably should have in math and English. And instead of doing an assessment, we now take their high school transcripts. So we're going back to where we once came from, basically doing it the old school way. And uh, there's a lot of data out there that shows that students uh, tend to do, uh, they tend to the rise to the occasion when they're placed uh, in the appropriate classes. And then um, California Promise is another uh, initiative where uh, students from the Sacramento area can come to our community colleges tuition free. And in West Sac, that's been happening with the city of West Sac, with the West Sacramento uh, Promise, and uh, that's been hugely successful as well. And then, uh, of course, we're, we're trying to uh, create guided pathways where our students, at the point of connection, come in and as before they even register, maybe the first semester they register, they actually try to figure out what their career is going to be or what their major is so that they're not wandering for semester after semester. And they get put on a path and that path is not our degree. Again, the path is employment or the transfer degree. But the reality at Sac City College is we don't need more initiatives. We actually need to make sure that the initiatives that we're doing, we're on the path and we're not being seduced by other initiatives and we go to the flavor of the month. So our uh, next couple of years is really taking uh, uh, a look at ourselves and focusing on what we're going to do. So Vanessa, as you mentioned earlier, uh, the first year was getting to know people, people getting to know me. Hopefully they bought into me with the expectation that next year as we're visioning, as we're building the plan, then they can buy into that vision because they bought into uh, the connections that we've made together. And uh, so next year we will be focusing on a, a mission. When you look at our current mission statement, it's about a page long. And I don't care who you are, you're never going to remember the mission statement when it's that long. And uh, you know, I, I worked at a college in 2003 that changed the mission statement and it was Mountain View College. And Mountain View College empowers people and transforms communities. It doesn't even have to be good. It was short and I still remember it, right? So we need to create a really good mission statement that we can all buy into and then have a vision statement that uh, takes us where we want to be in five years. You know, we've talked already about how we uh, used to be about access, that we used to be about access and completion. Now it's about access and equity, completion, and post-graduation success. So our vision needs to reflect that. And then our values, right now, when you look at our values, we have three values, and, and they're good, 
But there are things that represent Sac City College that aren't in our values. You know, we call ourselves a people's college. We say that social justice is something we really value, yet it's not written down. So we have to say what we're going to do. And it's, it's like the concept of mapping your own life, right? When you are planning to go on a trip, you just don't get in your car and start driving. Even if you don't map it out on paper, in your brain, you get in your car, you know where you're going, and you drive. Well, the college is no different. We should have a plan about uh, determining where we're going. And if our current plan isn't really telling us where we're going, then we need to revise it. And that's what we're going to do this upcoming year, hopefully to remain focused on what we're going to do. And I just wanted to ask uh, quickly about the uh, coding program this summer. Anyone can take. Uh, is there information on the website? Can people still, Sac City website, is it still eligible? I'd like to promote that to people I know who would be interested sure. in taking that. Sure. The, uh, there will be a formal announcement later in the summer. Right now we're okay. working with Apple on a, on a formal date, and the classes will begin in the fall. And okay. they, they're active uh, right now, but nobody knows where to look for them. So, uh, <laughs> But we will have a formal announcement in the summer. We'll make sure okay. that that gets out to the public. Okay, good. So we'll look forward to it. Um, all right. I'd like to invite people to, to step up to the mic. It's right there by the pole. And uh, while you are lining up, I know, I know there's got to be other questions besides mine. Um, I did want to ask in terms of... Um, words or acronyms that I hear a lot at school, uh, STEM and STEAM. So STEM stands for science, technology, engineering, math, STEAM, you add uh, art in the middle of that. I see that a lot now when it comes to uh, getting students ready for jobs that require those uh, five skills. So this ties into the rise of thought that uh, schools, public schools, um, grade schools and community colleges uh, are, need to help their students not only uh, graduate but be hireable for these for these jobs. So I was wondering how you both see workforce development happening in your schools. How does that play into the curri curriculum? Uh, are you working together on this issue? It sounds like there is some conversation there. I'm wondering if it focuses on on these on these topics. And you know, we had mentioned budget constraints um, and how schools are funded, is it possible or is it viable? How, you know, how can you add on uh, things that are required for workforce development um, to the current budget you have? Is that going to be a challenge or is that something that you see that you can do? So another multi-part question, but who would like to start with that? Jorge. Sure, absolutely. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> One of the questions that I get asked quite a bit, um, given my uh, work in Fresno Unified, is whether we increased A to G completion rates, uh, sort of eligibility rates for colleges and universities, because we created a default A to G graduation uh, requirement, uh, meaning that many schools have said, uh, if you want to graduate from our high school, you have to complete the A to G course pattern. And so you might expect school districts to then see an increase in A to G completion rates? And the answer um, in Fresno was no, and the answer uh, in Sac City will be no as well. Uh, and that's because um, I uh, wanna make sure that we stay focused on um, our guiding principle, which states that we will graduate students with the greatest number of post-secondary choices. 
Uh, and that's not limited to colleges and universities. That's really in its purest sense, high school is part of our secondary school system. So post-secondary is uh, ensuring that students can make whatever choice they would like to make. Uh, so um, I say that because uh, I am an avid supporter of pathway programs um, that allow our students to experience both um, sort of the more traditional kind of theoretical, uh, what you might assume are A to G courses, but also experiential hands-on project-based programs as well. Um, and I'm very proud that um, in Sac City, uh, we have developed very strong pathway programs uh, that have, uh, sure, gone through um, some evolution in that I also want to support uh, pathway programs where students still complete the A to G course pattern. Because again, that's what our guiding principle states. It states that students should have the greatest number of post-secondary choices. So a number of weeks ago, um, I was with one of our board members and we uh, visited Consumness uh, uh, River College and um, uh, throughout the entire parking lot, there were about 32 schools um, with construction programs uh, that were participating in a competition of tiny home building. Um, and so uh, we had a number of our high schools which have uh, construction uh, trade programs. Um, and what I've said is um, that students could not build a tiny house without understanding geometry. And so uh, the, the, um, the commitment then needs to be how do we better integrate right, um, those experiential uh, opportunities um, with what we also know those programs rely on, which is some theory. Um, and so um, our students should be exposed uh, to conceptual physics um, and autom automotive. Right? They should be doing geometry and, um, and construction. Um, and that's how you learn how to tile set. Um, uh, and so um, I will continue to advocate for uh, robust pathway programs uh, where, uh, you know, my vision, if, if I could uh, recreate all of these programs, uh, is that our students would not be handed the burden of understanding whether a course is A to G or not. That our students simply go through our high school system uh, without having to make any decisions about whether they want to pursue A to G or a pathway program. And if they pursue a pathway program, then they may not be eligible for college or university if they so choose. Uh, and I often talk about my daughter's own experience who uh, started in an engineering pathway program, is still in an engineering pathway program right now. And truth be told, she probably wouldn't be able to describe the difference between A to G and non-A to G. Um, and frankly, whether she chooses to attend a four-year college or university or community college um, is not as important to me as having her exposed uh, to engineering while she's pursuing uh, a high school diploma. Uh, and so I do, in answering your question, absolutely believe that we can integrate um, uh, these concepts. Uh, college and career uh, cannot be treated as mutually exclusive uh, pathways. Um, uh, but, you know, 
Uh, I wish if I could change something in the world, I mean, among other things, um, the fact that we're in this space of A to G um, connotes college um, and uh, uh, pathways connotes career technical education. Uh, and uh, I wish that we could find a way to just reset everything and find a different term for A to G, uh, find a different term for career technical education, and create a system where students are simply pursuing uh, wonderful educational experiences without regard to whether or not they're going to have the greatest number of post-secondary choices. And it's on us to ensure that we build a system where they get to choose. And uh, if they choose colleges, great. If they choose the labor workforce, great. If they choose an apprenticeship program, great as well. Uh, but I can't tell you how frustrating it is uh, to still be uh, in, in, in an educational system where I often hear that um, college isn't for all of our students uh, and some of our students need to you know, uh, enter a career technical ed or a vocational program. Uh, that's the result of how we've built our educational system. Uh, but it's not a burden that we should uh, put on the shoulders of students and parents. Michael. I think that was a great description by Superintendent Aguilar. And just to uh, build on that and, and not reiterate what he said, uh, the workforce programs and the partnerships we have with business and industry is critical because uh, business and industry inform us on what we need to teach in the curriculum. They uh, allow our students to uh, be, part, be part of an earn and learn while they're gaining their associate degree or certificate. They can be part of internships. They are given jobs. They help us inform us when we need to build a different program or to, when to close a program, which is as critical as anything else because the last thing we want to do is be creating people that are credentialed and there are no jobs for them. Or there are jobs for them, but we're creating too many credentialed people. And so those are huge mistakes. And so that connection is, is highly critical. And as a college, what we are challenged with is how agile are we going to be when there's a need in Sacramento? Because when you look at what's happening, there's a housing shortage. You get on the highways and it's congested. And if we still have our companies bringing people from the outside, and I know I came from the outside, okay, but uh, uh, if we keep on doing that, we will create a bigger housing shortage. We will create further congestion in the highways. And it is our moral responsibility to educate and train our citizens to take those jobs because they already have houses, right? They already are on the highways, so we don't need to add that. So the question is really important, and our reaction to that, and again, our uh, how nimble are we going to be in response to that? And I think that's our biggest challenge. So let's take our first question at the mic. The, thanks so much for uh, coming to speak uh, with us tonight. Um, uh, you, you expressed some concern at the beginning about um, gentrification, and I was just curious whether you've seen any upside to gentrification in, in the institutions that you've run, whether, um, I guess, maybe through greater socioeconomic integration or uh, greater resources, 
perhaps private philanthropy um, that have helped, you know, fund some of these programs. Jorge, would you like to start with sure. that? Sure. Um, <clears throat> well, um, as I said at the beginning, I mean, I this is my first post where um, I've seen uh, sort of that happening in front of me. Um, I didn't see or experience that in Fresno. Um, uh, and what I'm committed to doing, uh, and I think it's our obligation um, as uh, educators uh, leading these organizations is to do everything we can to mitigate the effects. Um, and so what does that mean? Um, one, I think that um, something notable that I would also mention is um, the wonderful partnership uh, that we have begun to build uh, with, um, with our city and county officials. Uh, tomorrow I'll be uh, meeting with um, the city of Rancho Cordova, uh, the mayor, uh, I have coffee scheduled for Friday with Mayor Steinberg. I meet with Mayor Steinberg quite a bit. Um, and I do think that uh, we have to continue to build a strong city-school uh, district uh, partnership um, uh, because the same issues uh, that uh, we deal with are the issues that our city is dealing with. Um, uh, I'm not sure if Vanessa will ask anything around uh, sort of uh, recent controversies, McClatchy, et cetera, right? But uh, the mayor put it best when he said uh, that uh, these issues of race uh, and equity and social justice uh, are not limited to the walls of our schools and our district, uh, that these are issues that we are going to have to confront as a community. Um, and, um, and we saw it more recently uh, uh, after um, the Stefan Clark shooting, um, where uh, the same emotions um, uh, and the same consternation uh, that we had just felt uh, a few weeks prior uh, were once again felt. Um, and so um, I am wholly committed uh, to figuring out how to better leverage our resources, human and capital, uh, to make sure that we're mitigating uh, the effects uh, of, of, of what the mayor uh, has talked about time and time again. Uh, and so, um, uh, more specifically, I will just say uh, that our board um, and I have talked about the need uh, to look at how we budget very different than how we have budgeted in the past. Uh, our current budgeting model is uh, very traditional in that we look, for example, at FTE, how many students are enrolled in our schools. Um, if there's more than a certain amount, then we provide more resources. If there are fewer than a certain amount, we provide fewer resources. Uh, um, and we don't have, as part of those funding models, uh, any kind of review into whether schools have more students who are chronically absent more students who are displaying negative behaviors, more students who are academically deficient, um, et cetera. And so this is, this is, this is one way that, uh, that we intend uh, to address some of these issues. Um, um, you know, I, I, I say uh, quite often that uh, equity, access, and social justice depends on our political will to ask ourselves, what do we have to make up for? 
what do we have to make up for in a community that's going through this kind of gentrification, right? And that soon after we ask ourselves, what do we have to make up for, we have to then say, how do we make up for it? And the number one unconditional way of making up for it is through a budgeting process that looks different than it has in the past. Uh, and that's what we intend to work on uh, for next year's budget. Um, and I can obviously talk about some concerns I have and the amount of support that we're gonna need for that uh, because this is where the intersection uh, of equality and equity will hit us hardest if we're not prepared for those conversations. Can you go to the mic and ask that? <laughs> are, are you seeing any like greater resources? I mean, as I guess the, the city's coffers increase and, and there's more wealth obviously in the city. Are, is it benefiting our public students at all? Are, are, are you seeing an increased budget? Yeah, I mean, you know, that's that's a topic for another seminar. I mean, our 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 our, our budgets depend on state resources, um, and so um, uh, we're fortunate this year uh, that um, because of uh, the state's revenues, uh, which are larger than expected, uh, we will be receiving uh, some greater amounts in one-time funds. Uh, and, I, and I want to just focus on the fact that we are receiving more funds which are one time in nature. Um, and so obviously we have to be very careful about what we do with those resources because they're just for one year. Um, and, um, and again, I mean, budgeting and K-12 and prop, I mean, those, th that's a topic for an entire uh, seminar. Uh, we have some, I have some very serious concerns about uh, long-term unfunded liability uh, obligations that our district has. Uh, and so uh, as people say, you know, uh, we want him to stay for 10 years, um, I do think we have to start talking about those issues as a community now so that if I'm here for 10 years, I don't spend year seven, eight, and nine, and 10 trying to figure out how to survive financially. Uh, but instead, that those are the years where we're starting to see the greatest results in terms of academic gains. And at the pace that we're going right now, uh, where there's very little talk about um, why we should all be concerned long-term about um, how K-12 is budgeted, um, um, I probably will be spending those years trying to figure out just how are we going to survive uh, financially. Michael. I won't add much more because uh, what I covered a lot of really great topics on that and uh, the issue of, of race in America, it's out, right? And uh, there's no doubt about that. And, and you know, the, when you had the situation most recently was Stefan Clark, who had been a student at Sacramento City College, so it hit some of our students really, really hard, uh, lived pretty close to our college, and, and so there was a lot of healing that, that had to take place uh, at, at the college. Um, what it's doing is it's forcing us to have this conversation, and the good thing is that's starting, and I'm glad that uh, Sacramento is is trying to have those conversations, those very hard conversations, because we know that these exist, these issues exist in other cities. And uh, 
I'm happy that we're at least starting the conversation because if we don't start them now and we wait, we're going to be further behind on what's going on with the issue of equity. Uh, it's something that's very serious. And, you know, in terms of funding and gentrification, I'm not sure we've seen anything at Sacramento City College per se, but some of the things that you've seen as an outcome trying to connect with what's happening, we've talked a little bit about them already with, like, the opening of the makerspace, the uh, anyone can code. It is trying to get our community that m maybe is trying to not be pushed out into jobs that are in the middle class so that they can continue to afford where they're living. Next question at the mic. Uh, my name is Joseph Berry. I'm a doctor of student education at Sac State, so I have like 20 questions, but I'm gonna try to, I'm gonna try to uh, you know, make this pretty brief. Uh, two things. Um, for the, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Jorge, uh, I want to know if you have a plan, like a specific plan to address the achievement gap as it relates to students with uh, disabilities and especially the uh, unequal uh, diagnosis, if you will, of minority students having these learning disabilities. Um, I was recently in contact with the uh, director of special education for the state of California. Or for, she worked for the Department of Education. She was the director of that division. She has a, she thinks that it would be, instead of segregate, because we're, we're, California, especially Sacramento, is being accused of segregating uh, students with disabilities and learning disabilities at a rate that's uh, far higher than the rest of the nation. Um, she had a plan that would put uh, special ed students in classrooms and rather than taking the students with disabilities, learning disabilities out and have those uh, special ed students also available to all the students to help close the achievement gap, I would say, um, to uh, advise different learning methods for kids that may be struggling, whether they're diagnosed or not. Do you see, so it's a two-part question. A, do you have a plan to, to address that situation? And B, do you see that recommendation as something that's realistic? Or is that something that funding or other uh, uh, issues would prevent from being uh, pursuable? What's well, an excellent question. It's a very timely question, uh, Joseph, uh, particularly because um, uh, we, uh, on last Thursday's board meeting, um, had a conversation about uh, our special education program. Um, uh, I met, uh, I talked to Kristen Wright, uh, the director at CDE, uh, this morning, um, and um, am of the feeling that um, this is a complex issue that we're going to have to confront. Um, uh, in terms of your question about the achievement gap as it relates to uh, students with disabilities um, and disproportionality, um, sort of long term, right? Uh, what I just laid out in terms of a focus on grade level readiness, um, uh, hopefully will begin to mitigate uh, some of those outcomes uh, in that uh, I want to create uh, the interventions that need to take place as soon as students are demonstrating uh, deficiencies and struggles academically. Um, and that's not something that we have done well uh, in most urban school systems. Um, and so what you then see is students continue to struggle year after year and then are identified uh, for uh, special education services. 
and so we have made, as you heard, a very strong commitment uh, to create interventions that are much more rapid and swift in nature, uh, which is why we're launching uh, an initiative around the summer. I don't want to wait for kinder students right now who are struggling to enter first grade still struggling. Uh, I want to ensure that kinder students who are struggling now um, get the interventions during the summer and come into the first day of school in a much stronger position academically so that they're not struggling as much. Um, but I also recognize that this is an issue uh, that has caused a lot of pain and anguish for families. And that we have to balance both what we're trying to do at a high level for all students, but also meet the needs of individual family members that have undergone and suffered uh, through a system that is not as responsive as we should be uh, to meet the needs of students with disabilities as well. Um, uh, today I met with, um, with several uh, law firms uh, that um, are equally concerned about um, how Sac City uh, begins to respond more effectively uh, to students with disabilities. And I made a commitment to them uh, that um, we will be deconstructing, if you will. We, we, we had a partnership with the Council of Great City Schools, which is a, a large organization um, that uh, came in last year and provided an audit on our special education program. And they laid out 10 recommendations uh, that we have to uh, implement, if you will. Um, and we are in the process of beginning to uh, identify what are the deadlines uh, and the implementation timelines uh, to remedy uh, the issues that that audit found uh, for us. Is that is that audit public information or is that still? It uh, is public and I'd be happy to send you the okay, link and cool. send you the, the, the audit report okay. as well. Thank you very much. But I, can I just say, uh, Joseph, that um, um, uh, in the 10 months that I have been here, um, uh, those are 10 months uh, where we could have done more. Um, and, um, and we um, are going to commit uh, to our entire community, uh, but in particular to uh, our community of families uh, whose students um, should be served uh, more effectively uh, by our special ed program. Um, and um, uh, I, I made it clear to our board uh, that um, in my evaluation, uh, uh, for um, my own personal uh, evaluation for my job, uh, they should hold me accountable for making improvements uh, in how we better serve uh, students with disabilities. Thank you. If, if, if your uh, action on the summer school, I really, really appreciate that. I think that that was a very proactive approach. And so, you know, I meant to compliment you on that uh, before I asked the question. Last question, and, and, and this is for Michael. You talked uh, about a lot of initiatives that City College is implementing, uh, the Apple uh, program and different programs that uh, will help students to, uh, you know, navigate the system, if you will. Within those initiatives or around those initiatives, do you have any uh, specific plans to 
make sure that uh, underrepresented students, minority students, are accessed or you know given access to those programs so that those programs aren't uh, overwhelmingly taken by uh, people who have internet access, if you will, or have the resources to know about them. Um, are there uh, you know specific ways to drive those populations to those programs so that um, you know we're able to also participate at a level that's acceptable. Sure, thank you, Joseph. And, and in fact, we have one of our deans back there uh, that is uh, participating in our equity initiative. And, and uh, we're getting uh, really at the granular level with our issues of equity. And so uh, we've, uh, uh, each of the uh, deans have been given uh, information on success broken by all the different groups and we have calculated for example with um, uh, Latinos uh, overall at the college uh, for us uh, as a college for the, for Latinos to get to the level of equity the average uh, 1600 Latinos have to pass one more course for African Americans it's about 1200 Okay, and then we broke we broke that down by division, and so Casey back there, Dean, has all that data, and then it's broken down by discipline, and then it's broken down by faculty, and so each of the deans are working with our faculty and holding ourselves accountable on how we can achieve equity with each of the groups. So we've gotten down to that granular level of holding ourselves accountable. And that's incredible, incredibly powerful for our institution. And um, that's just a start. You know, we're not, I mean, it's a great question. You know, you asked, you know, are we ensuring we're getting to that part? We're not there yet. We still have a lot more to do. Okay. The next question. Uh, good evening. My name is Rashad Bakir. Uh, I know both these gentlemen. Uh, and matter of fact, you know, uh, Superintendent Aguilar, I told you when I first met you in our meeting uh, that you're going to have to remind the people that your name is Jorge, not Jesus. <laughs> because you got a lot of <laughs> on your plate, brother. But um, we, um, we certainly, um, you know, when you look at these issues related to students of color, uh, specifically to African Americans and access and the achievement gap. Uh, and a big thing um, that addresses to my concern uh, is the wealth gap. And I want to get some understanding from both of you gentlemen, if you could elaborate, uh, about how do you go about tying in uh, this competency to, for students understanding and their families uh, community uh, at large uh, of the wealth gap because for African Americans the wealth gap is three times more than three times three and a half times less than whites and it's increasingly widening um, and how do we go about so I'm just kind of tie these two questions in there um, with that aspect of the wealth gap with financial literacy in some sort of academia for kids understanding. Because in addition to that, we deal with debt. 
you know, that they get to the higher level, that is a big issue and, and a big deterrent for a lot of these students um, that, we, that I'd like to see uh, tied to that. So, um, and then the other question, um, again, deferring to you, uh, Superintendent, um, is the model that we currently have with the school district antiquated too large? And what do you say uh, as far as uh, potential change with increasing to charter schools? Should we re-examine uh, the, the current model for the future? Because, you know, we have to be adapting to the changing needs. We talk about gentrification, um, the aspect that uh, upper income families might pull their kids out into homeschool, uh, setting up charter schools. So should the district itself, uh, how does it go about at, in its future planning, meeting needs uh, of, a, of a system that may be too large to address all these, all these systems? Or you know, could you sub-district uh, some of these? You know, what sort of other models could you look at that could address a lot of the specific needs to specific populations, you know, rather than a one-size-fits-all. Thank you. So handling student debt and uh, redistricting districts, those are two questions. But uh, Jorge, would you like to start with that? Well, thank you for your questions. Jorge, I think they need to ask harder questions, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> thank you for your question and your partnership. Um, I. Um, uh, it, sort of tying back to the to the answer to the question around workforce development, um, we have to really double down on ensuring that our students are not focused on um, deep issues uh, like income and all of those kinds of things because we've given them the opportunity to succeed uh, and have the options and the choices to pursue uh, any career that they would like to pursue. Uh, I feel that um, if, if we have failed a, a student and, and they are on the verge of dropping out, then they will think about those kinds of things, you know, money and how to make money. Um, and what I think that we need to start doing better is making sure that our students understand that we are building their skills so they have whatever option they want to pursue. Uh, and we have to recommit uh, uh, to making sure that that is what we're producing in terms of outcomes. And the reason why I say it is because there's a lot of, and I haven't really talked about data, I like data a lot, but you know, we should be tired now of accepting that for our black and brown and for example, our Hmong students, right? And Southeast Asian students, their chances of being admitted to selective colleges and universities, which still today um, have a strong correlation in terms of income levels, are much lower than their peers. And, and the reality is that as we look at what we're producing in Sac City, uh, and I said, I've said this several times as a result of our specialty programs, uh, we had 
a class of about 500 African-American eighth graders. And I feel very privileged uh, to be serving in a community where 20% of our students are African-American. Right? By and large, I mean, that is one of the highest percentages across all urban school districts in the state of California. So why is it that with a class of 500 African-American students, only 23 of them meet the eligibility criteria to enroll at HISP, PACE, or WEST, our most selective specialty programs? And Marcos wrote a column and said, it probably is easier to get 23 students to enroll in those selective programs than it is to grow the number of students that have the choice of enrolling in a specialty program. If we can increase, find ways through the things that we're doing with kinder students who are struggling and second graders who are struggling, et cetera, to increase the pool of students that reach eighth grade and reach 12th grade and reach sixth grade, mastering grade level proficiency, which I intend to do, then the idea that students are going to be thinking about how to survive financially, right, may be lessened. I mean, certainly having grown up in a low income family, right, I saw the effects and, and, and they're still part of my memories today. But I also know that had I not been partially prepared, I mean, that's the chemistry story, right? But at least I was given the opportunity to make a choice about pursuing higher ed. And then years later, enduring a lot of struggles and a lot of sacrifices, right, to find that because I had that choice, you know, I can provide for my children in ways that my parents couldn't provide for me. So as, as President Gutierrez said, I mean, we are still the last bastion of opportunity for our students who don't have um, the upbringing and the family circumstances uh, that my children will have uh, because I was fortunate to have uh, been the first in my family to go to college and then break that cycle, right? Um, and so, you know, my, my dad reminds me, when I see him in Fresno every once in a while, he'll say, how's it going? And, and he doesn't understand my work. And I'll say, you know, it's, it's tough. It's tough. And he still will make fun of me when I say something about how tough it is and how stressed I am. He said, well, why don't you come help me at the ranch, right? <laughs> um, so that you can remind yourself of, of, of what hard work is, right? Um, and um, I'm reminded of that because um, he didn't create the opportunities that I think we have to create for our students. And I demand from our staff that we not look to our external forces, right? We are not going to blame external forces for the kinds of results that we're seeing, right? We have to own up to the fact that out of a class of 500 students, only 23 are demonstrating the academic readiness to be able to enroll in our most selective specialty programs as eighth graders. 
because four years later, that number is going to go down unless we change how we provide opportunities for our students when some of those students may want to pursue a four-year college or university, right? And we have to own up to those results. Um, and, 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 and that's what I intend to do. That's why um, I don't have to be reminded that the work that we envision in Sac City is not going to be done in two years. Uh, and, you know, um, my dad, part of his joking with me is he reminds me that I'm in my prime for my career. And so this is the time for me to work very hard, long hours, to try to see if we can change conditions on behalf of our students, right? Um, and so I don't entertain the idea of breaking up Sac City into smaller districts um, uh, until I'm proven otherwise. Um, otherwise, we're moving forward uh, with a great deal of integrity and commitment uh, and not looking to external forces to say, that's the reason why we're failing. We're failing because we still have to redesign a system that is producing inequitable outcomes for our students. You know, Jorge, my brothers keep on asking me how many more degrees I need to get before I can fix my car when it breaks down. So we are seven, it's 8.07. Uh, we still have some questions at the mic, but I do want to ask, do you have like 10 minutes or so? And so for those at the mic, uh, we want to take all your questions, but if you can please keep them brief and succinct. Yes, all right. will be brief. Next, next question. Okay, Th uh, thank you, Jorge and Michael, for being here. My name is Manuel Ruedas, <clears throat> and uh, I started my teaching career 41 years ago, and it was really hard to find uh, a job back then. I think... Uh, Things have changed nowadays, and uh, my question is, uh, what strategies or, uh, or what, uh, uh, what techniques or what, what, what plans do you have uh, for recruiting new teachers and faculty? Thank you. This is Michael. I'll, I'll start with that one. Um, <clears throat> I think for, and let's start with faculty. Okay, and, and uh, I'll let Jorge tackle the staff one. Um, at, at the community college level, the least diverse faculty pool are the adjunct faculty. And so what we need to focus on with our deans and our current faculty is to begin the diversification there because about 60% of our full-time hires come from the adjunct pool. And so if we can diversify our adjuncts, then we have greater likelihood to diversify our full-time faculty. So I think we start there. And what is it going to take? Well, um, being gritty. It's going to take our deans calling the graduate schools, not the dean, but the division secretary, and asking them questions of, do you have any potential faculty that we can talk to? And they will give you the list. And then start recruiting them there. We can't wait until they're out because there's too much competition out there. So we need to get ahead of the other colleges. So Manuel, I know you're at ARC, so just don't take that uh, advice. We'll, we'll, we'll keep it at Sac City College. 
Well, I think it's an excellent question, um, uh, Manuel, um, and it reminds me, you know, um, I had the once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to uh, be a founding staff member at UC Merced. Um, uh, I was hired there in 1998, and we had seven years uh, to build the campus in 05. And there was a great deal of pressure uh, in ensuring that we brought in a diverse uh, faculty. Um, and uh, time and time again, I was in conversations with our search committees uh, that uh, reminded me of the competition and how difficult it was to find African-American professors um, or Chicano-Latino professors uh, and others because every other college was vying for the few that were pursuing uh, a PhD program. Uh, so. Um, my response was always that then we have to be more aggressive about going to those candidates. Um, and so uh, we have begun the process of thinking about uh, that in Sac City. Uh, Linda Darling-Hammond today wrote a great op-ed piece on the need for the state to also address the teacher shortage issue. Uh, and I'm very proud that uh, our Board of Education uh, has supported me as superintendent uh, in being uh, very innovative around this. Um, we held a meeting, for example, uh, a couple of weeks ago with uh, Dean Kevin Johnson uh, from the Davis Law School, uh, as well as with the Attorney General's office uh, around uh, the possibility of arguing uh, for petitioning uh, documented teachers. Uh, so teachers who have a DACA permit, who are in our system already, uh, who have a great deal of anxiety uh, because of the immigration rhetoric uh, that we're facing as a nation, um, who have been told that the program will end. Um, and so we are studying right now the viability of advancing an argument on the basis of a teacher shortage much like Silicon Valley companies argue around computer programmers and others, uh, to say, look, we have a teacher shortage. These are individuals that have been vetted by Homeland Security. Uh, they have a credential, right? Um, so why can't we, as a district, petition for their immigration status? Um, and our board did not balk at all at that kind of innovative thinking. Uh, in fact, what they said to me is, can we advance the same type of argument to classified staff, bilingual um, aid instructors, for example, um, and other uh, 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 classified positions that also require uh, a very specific set of skills? Um, so um, I feel very, very fortunate um, that uh, we have a Board of Education uh, that is wholeheartedly committed uh, to diversifying our teacher workforce uh, through uh, these kinds of initiatives that uh, probably will bring a lot of attention and a lot of scrutiny and perhaps lawsuits um, for us to advance this kind of uh, thinking. Uh, and I feel pretty confident um, that uh, we will continue uh, down that path. Uh, along the same uh, lines, uh, we uh, will probably propose in our budget 
some kind of pathway program, pipe, pipeline program for DACA students uh, to perhaps pursue a fifth year teacher credential program and that Sac City would provide conditional employment opportunities for them. So uh, much like other programs uh, that have been established by the state, students, uh, those teachers would have to work for us for a number of years, uh, and in return, we would incentivize them to pursue a fifth-year teacher credential program and provide a scholarship or a grant um, to offset uh, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, fees and, and tuition and such. Um, so basically saying don't enter the workforce get a teacher credential, we will support you and we will offer you a position at Sac City as well. Uh, and the board has said, let's, let's move forward with those kinds of uh, initiatives. All right, next question. Well, first of all, thank you for being here tonight and for moving to Sacramento. My name is Daisy Gonzalez and I'm the new deputy chancellor at the California Community College's Chancellor's Office. Thank you. Uh, so we oversee all of California's 114 community colleges, and we oversee also the largest public higher education system in the nation. So I thank you for everything that you said tonight. I am also a former foster youth, so my question is about foster youth in the city of Sacramento. What have you learned about foster youth in Sacramento, and what will you do differently to address the educational outcomes of foster youth? All right, Jorge, we'll start. Okay, well, thank you for your question, um, uh, Daisy. Um, the first thing I'd say is um, the, the current system of accountability already is um, putting a great deal of focus on our neediest students. Uh, not all, uh, but foster youth are one of uh, three uh, groups of students that we are held accountable for uh, a variety of metrics, and that includes making sure that uh, our foster youth are graduating, our foster youth are completing uh, the A to G course pattern, they have access to AP courses, and such. Um, in Sac City, uh, we have a unit that is responsible for ensuring that the needs of our foster youth are met. Um, uh, so I feel very proud of the work that we're doing in Sac City. Um, but like other populations of our students, um, I do think that we can still improve uh, in providing more rapid responses uh, to our foster youth. Um, and that um, uh, will require us to partner with Sac City, for example, Sac City College. Um, we have to, and I often remind my staff that uh, uh, culture eats strategy for lunch. Um, and, and, and we still have a culture where um, we um, care for our students while they're under our care. Um, but in the case of our neediest students like foster youth, we have to do more for them even beyond graduation. Um, and um, in, in my experience in higher ed, uh, we all know about summer melt. Uh, you know, the phenomenon that students who are admitted to colleges and universities, who register for classes, uh, then don't show up at the college or university that they had intended to uh, enroll at in the fall. Um, I think we have to do more for our students during the summer months, especially during the transition between K-12 and higher ed. And again, we don't have a culture 
because they're no longer our students, um, but they're our students as a community. Um, and so part of the ideas that I would like to advance through this data sharing agreement is how do we work more closely with our colleges and universities to make sure that the summer months, you know, life can happen, but that the summer months are months where we're still providing services jointly to foster youth and others. Michael. Sure, and uh, I think my observations over the past 10 months is the uh, inconsistency of services that, that we're providing. And, and uh, uh, when we have been able to have uh, consistent services with a single person that the foster youth see over and over again, we see high levels of success. When, when we've not done that, then uh, we don't see the students. Uh, uh, they'll, they'll do something else. And, and we really need to uh, make sure that uh, we uh, partner with Sac City Unified School District earlier because um, you know, there, there are other times where we see the foster youth, and that's uh, through our homeless population that are students. Uh, students that have uh, uh, going through our reemerging scholars program that uh, have been part of the juvenile juvenile justice system, and so uh, it, it's a it's a very it's a very real issue, and, and it's something that we know we have to provide uh, more resources to and, and more consistent services. All right, next question. Hello, um, I'm a member of the Coalition for Students with Disabilities, um, and my question is this. Um, like you gentlemen. I recently moved here to Sacramento from another state. I have children that attend Sacramento City Unified School District. And what I found disparaging is, uh, since I've been here, so and this is related to my question, is the lack of technology um, just across the board. So my question to both of you is, what will you implement in the next five, 10 years to make sure that our students are on level with the new coming employment and so forth that's going to be happening here in Sacramento, especially with the aging population, what will be implemented, so. So the use of technology in schools that students yes. should be using. Yes, yes. Well, sure, I'll start. Um, the first thing that I'll say is that um, uh, the district, as I understand, um, already began the process of um, investing pretty heavily in technology. Uh, my expectation, uh, having come from another large urban school district as well, is that we have to ensure that um, our uh, technology group, if you will, um, is working much more closely with our curriculum and instruction uh, division and professional learning division to make sure that we are effectively integrating uh, technology in the classroom. Uh, so for example, one of the expectations uh, that I uh, made clear uh, to our staff is that I want to be able to document when a student has signed on to a computer in a classroom versus a library. Um, and um, that I want to have greater assurances that technology is being effectively integrated into our lesson plans. Uh, and um, that uh, we don't have technologies just available to our students, 
but not being integrated um, into our curriculum and instruction. Uh, and so um, I'm not, um, we will continue to invest in technology, um, but the most important aspect for me uh, will be to uh, ensure that uh, the integration uh, occurs. Uh, and and this, is a, this is an area that um, we have yet to learn more and more about um, because it's one thing to invest in technology uh, and have computer carts that are just sitting uh, as opposed to effectively integrating it into classroom instruction, uh, which as you know, uh, will also require a heavy investment in things like professional learning as well. And uh, what I will build on, because I think that's a, a really good response, Jorge, is because we have the similar struggles, right, in, in trying to forecast and implement and budget for, for technology in the future. This is a great opportunity, though, for uh, the um, public school system, for the community colleges, the universities, and, and private industry to be on the same page because uh, what we don't want at Sac City College is to make sure that the students that are coming from the high schools have a lot better technology than what we have because they're going to get to our college and be like, what's going on? What's going on? And, uh, uh, or if they're at Sac City College and they go to UC Davis and they have a, a much better experience there with technology or worse. And so I, I think this is a great opportunity for us to uh, connect it and make sure that we're on the same page with, with this issue. And you had mentioned private industry. I wanted to uh, add on to that about uh, public-private partnerships with technology. Is that something that can be explored, is being looked into? Are there pitfalls? Uh, I was just curious about uh, that uh, in terms of working with the private industry, particularly when it comes to technology. Is that something that you look at or consider or is viable? Michael? Sure, I think where uh, private industry has been particularly helpful is um, in partnership, they donate uh, technology to us. And many times there's uh, pieces of equipment uh, in heating, ventilation, air conditioning, for example, that the pieces of equipment are just too expensive for us to purchase. And uh, we're given a donation by, by the company. So it, it really advances what our students are, are capable of. And I, and I think an opportunity for us is uh, to start changing our mindset at, at the college uh, because sometimes we feel like we're landlocked uh, at, at the college. And, and when you look at Sacramento City College, it's, it's, we're not going to get more space, right? Because you have Land Park right across the street. You have Curtis Park, Oak Park uh, uh, surrounding us. Um, but our op opportunities are to partner with business and industry and send our students to uh, those areas so that they're getting the latest technology regardless. So one last question from the audience, and then I will ask one last quick question. Well, good evening, Enrique Rocha. Now I'll echo what Daisy said. Thank you for moving to Sacramento. You've definitely dropped a lot of knowledge on us today from the challenges you have to deal with uh, to the solutions that you have come up with. And so because of that, I'm, I'm wondering what role, obviously innovation has played a, a key role in what you do. Uh, along with entrepreneurship and cre creativity. So how do you foster that as a leader? Um, and since we've been discussing about the visions that you all have, which are really grand, I'm wondering about who are some of the women groundbreakers that have helped you implement that vision as well? Thank you. Jorge. Well, um, <clears throat> I'll first... Um, just mentioned my mom, of course. 
Um, um, and, you know, my memories of um, trying to keep up with her picking grapes, um, especially um, the hardest memories um, during the table grape season, you know, um, La Tabla, um, uh, which is very, very difficult work in that, you know, you're picking the grapes, you're putting them in trays, and then you have to lay the sheets of paper, spread the grapes, and then wait a number of weeks for them to become raisins and go back and um, uh, pick them up and send them off to uh, Sunmade, right, uh, which is in the Central Valley as well. Um, and me not being able to keep, keep up with her, um, and all I had to do was pick up the trays and spread them on sheets of paper, um, and she was uh, too fast for me. Um, um, and I mean, she's, she's, she was a groundbreaker uh, for me uh, in that um, uh, she did her best uh, to support me educationally, and I had a conversation, a brief conversation with, uh, with one of you earlier uh, that my mom epitomized what parent involvement looked like, right? I mean, she was at my teacher-parent conferences, uh, pretty much all that I can remember. Um, where, where we failed uh, and continue to fail parents who are involved is that we don't seek parent engagement. Um, and so, um, which I think is very different for me as superintendent. Uh, and even when we get to parent engagement, so we see parents who are part of our uh, district uh, committees or our Al LCAP committees or our school site council committees, uh, and they're engaged, uh, we, we fail those parents because we don't empower them. Uh, and so uh, I think that involvement is not enough, engagement is not enough, uh, we need to strive for uh, empowerment uh, of every one of our parents. And I was at, a, at an evening program yesterday and I said, look, if you could just demand that your child is on grade level, it would change our community, right? Um, in terms of the question around innovation and such, um, failure is a treasure under my leadership. Um, uh, and I also uh, temper solutionitis. Uh, I, I am not one uh, that uh, can be um, satisfied uh, if you bring solutions to the table without understanding the problem first, uh, right? I mean, it's the old adage of Albert Einstein saying that if he had an hour, right, to understand a problem, he'd use 55 minutes to um, understand what the problem is and five minutes for a solution, right? In education, we do it the other way around. We talk about solutions for 55 minutes and five minutes trying to understand the problem, right? Um, and we don't often enough demonstrate as practitioners, the humility in accepting that the outcomes that we are seeing our system produce are because that's how we designed uh, the system that's producing these outcomes. Uh, 
And so um, I'm very proud that a week and a half ago, we brought about 100 partners, uh, researchers, academics, clinicians, and technical experts to our district office to say, here are the areas that we need to change outcomes. Our EL redesignation rates continue to lag. Our graduation rates are too low. Our reading by third grade proficiency rates are too low. So as researchers, as clinicians, as psychologists, as technical experts, as community experts, how can you be part of a colleagueship of expertise so that we can begin to operate with greater humility that yes, we're practitioners and we know education, but we're still producing these outcomes that are unacceptable to our community, right? And so that shouldn't be innovative. Uh, and yet I heard from every one of the participants, why aren't we doing this more often? Where K-12 is going to partners and saying, we need your support, we need your assistance, we need your expertise to help us change the outcomes that we're producing today. Michael. Innovation is a funny thing. Uh, it has to be fostered by an environment where people feel like they're going to be supported. And as Jorge mentioned, if they fail, it's not going to be punitive. And uh, so that's, that's certainly part of it. But uh, the other part is uh, happens during the hiring process. And uh, it's very easy for people to be thinking about who fits in an institution. And, and the problem with that is you have a tendency to hire yourself when you think that way, when you start thinking about fit. And, and, and then as a result, you have groupthink, which stunts innovation. And, and maybe the way we need to be thinking about it is, you know, who we're hiring, how can they contribute to our institution? How can they contribute to Sac City College? How can they contribute to our culture? And uh, along with that mindset, then that will foster uh, innovation. And in terms of inspiration uh, for women, you know, my previous boss is, is um, uh, you know, she's the best boss I've ever had. Um, I can't say Brian King right now because he's only been my boss for 10 months. So, Brian, if you're listening, uh, no offense there. Um, uh, but I don't have to look that far because when you look at Sac City College, look at any of our colleges or universities, 60% are women. And they're doing really, really well. And um, uh, they are certainly the future for this country and, and uh, um, you know, for our you know, young men that are out there. Um, last I heard... Uh, women like educated guys, so we need to really uh, pick it up a little bit. All right, so last question is, uh, is a matter I think that we unfortunately hear too much about on campuses, and that's shootings. Um, I think there was an incident on City College earlier this year. There's been threats, and obviously around the nation we had one just last week. So I had a two-part question, but I think this one came to mind because uh, when I was at the uh, the library, the first my, uh, I think a couple weeks after the Stoneman Douglas shooting in Florida, the principal at uh, 
Ethel Phillips, Daniel Hernandez uh, came in and, and showed me how to draw the curtains, what the, the strategy was in case that happened. That really brought it home for me as just a librarian, like, wow, this is, this is reality now for a lot of students. So, uh, but one thing that I thought was very interesting, I thought was really amazing after the Stoneman Douglas uh, shooting was how these high school students became advocates and just did a national uh, march on DC, what, less than a month or so, or less than a week after they got things rolling and they have kept it going. So they have been uh, advocates. So I guess this two-part question for both of you is, you know, you have to make decisions about security and um, how to handle it and, and how to keep track of it. But also, I'm a, you want these kids to have a childhood, you know, be kids. How do you balance that? And then also in terms of, you know, these kids at Stillman Douglas obviously learned a lot of their skills in the classroom. What do you have in your school district and schools that you think um, can make your students um, change whatever fear or concerns they have about this into empowerment, into advocacy? Or what would you like to have there? Uh, so I guess, yeah, just making sure you, you balance concerns with, you know, letting kids have a normal life, if that's still possible, uh, when they're under your care. And then, um, rise, you know, raising them up so they can speak out and, and be advocates and not be under this gray cloud of fear. Jorge. Well, it's a great question. <clears throat> In Sac City, uh, like most urban school districts, um, uh, unfortunately, um, after um, a shooting incident, uh, we saw and uh, went through a variety of instances where we had uh, almost on a daily basis, uh, especially after Parkland, um, uh, on a daily basis, uh, social media threats, uh, phone threats, uh, uh, and obviously, I mean, we had to, for example, we shut down JFK, one of our high schools on a Friday uh, morning, uh, and uh, I was very, very concerned uh, that uh, that might be our new normal uh, because it felt like we were sending messages to families almost every single day uh, about this. Uh, and I would go to some of the schools just to show my support um, in light of uh, these threats. Uh, we are in the process, uh, and, and obviously this is where I will uh, remind uh, everyone that uh, I share in those concerns around safety because my own children are in our school sites. And um, we are in the process of continuing to look for ways of improving. Um, and we're in the process now of doing a comprehensive assessment of uh, which of our schools may not have drapery uh, in all of our classrooms. Uh, which of our schools may still have a facility, and I'm not, I haven't found one yet, but we're still doing the assessment, where we don't have access to an intercom to communicate effectively and rapidly uh, to every one of our classrooms, uh, where we might have classrooms that would benefit from a peephole, uh, where we might have technology that we have to upgrade in the form of walkie-talkies and such, uh, where we might have 
uh, open spaces that might benefit from uh, fencing, uh, and the kinds of practices that we're engaged in. I mean, we have a lot, all of our school sites, uh, in my opinion, are safe, uh, but we sometimes leave gates open. Uh, all of our, we're looking at locks uh, in every one of our classrooms, uh, but sometimes even where we have locks, you know, we don't have to knock on the door because we keep them open. Uh, so a lot of this has to do with us sort of reassessing some of the practices that we have to shift um, but we're also very committed to um, uh, uh, going through an assessment process. I will also uh, take um, just a few seconds to, to thank uh, uh, Chief Han for the amazing partnership that we have uh, with law enforcement. We have uh, 12 school resource officers. This is Sacramento Police Chief. Sacramento Police Chief uh, uh, Daniel Han. Uh, we have a partnership where we have uh, school resource officers on our campuses. Uh, who monitor the safety of our students as well. Um, and you know, in the 10 months that I've been here, I have found um, that uh, the partnership has resulted in very quick action. Um, and, and certainly as a parent, sometimes you wonder, well, why didn't the principal know? Well, sometimes things are happening so fast that law enforcement is making some of, the, some of these decisions very quickly. Um, and, and in the last, in the, the other part of the question in terms of the advocacy and, the, and sort of the, 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 the youth movement aspect of this, um, obviously uh, we experienced that here as well. But I will also say uh, that, you know, uh, Member Minnick and I have talked about it, Michael Minnick, who's our board member, one of our seven board members. Uh, my own daughter came home as we were preparing for the national uh, student walkout and, um, and suggested to me that, uh, she and her friends felt that uh, that they weren't given enough flexibility and freedom to organize this work, um, and that there was still too much adult uh, involvement um, in this. Uh, but that she also reminded me, uh, um, uh, as part of, um, of, 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 of her work, she co-founded a Mecha Club at her high school, uh, that, um, that students were talking about, you know, other needs from other students and other communities uh, that they also felt needed to um, uh, come to the fore. Um, you know, uh, Black Lives Matter, which started uh, several years ago, uh, um, uh, uh, the plight of an undocumented and unprotected youth as well, um, and, and the sentiment that we have to remind ourselves that those are struggles that many of our students are also uh, enduring and that we have to be responsive uh, to those concerns as well. And so, uh, yes, we have to support our students and we have to do something about gun reform, but we also uh, need to make sure that uh, the plight of, uh, of other students that have also been demanding uh, greater attention is respected as well. And it's something that um, uh, we will continue to, uh, to support our youth um, uh, through partnerships. Uh, we formed a partnership with Californians for Justice um, to do more youth advocacy, youth-led research, uh, to give students the opportunity to find solutions uh, that, uh, that sometimes obviously are more viable than, than those that we come up with as adults. Michael, last word. Sure, and, and, and the issue of safety is, is very real at the college, and, and I think what makes it slightly different, and you mentioned the shooting, it was about three years ago that occurred at the parking lot, is that uh, 
you know, at, at institutions like Sacramento City College, part of the charm is it's an open institution. You can walk up there, you can cross the street from from Land Park, and and it's 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 charming, it's beautiful, but it's a double-edged sword because anybody can walk in from off the street, get into the uh, 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 the college campus, and and that's how, you know, in the parking lot, that's what happened with the shooting is that. You know, they weren't students; they were private citizens that that, that were at our at our parking lot. So that that that's an added element that that we have to deal with, and and uh, uh, but we don't want to become isolationists either at the same time. And so we don't want to, we don't want the fear to dictate our behavior, while at the same time creating a, a an environment that's safe for our students, for our faculty and our staff, and, and, and many of the things that Jorge just mentioned in terms of trying to accomplish that, uh, we're doing just that. Well, obviously we covered a lot. Uh, I'm sure there's still plenty we could have talked about. Uh, you have a lot on your plate, but we're rooting you on. We're glad you're here in Sacramento. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk with us, and, and thank you all for being here. Have a good night. You've been listening to California Groundbreakers. Tonight's Groundbreaker Q&A conversation was held on May 24, 2018 at Antiquity Midtown. A special thanks to Sharon Wilson of Antiquity Midtown, Alex Barrios of Sac City Unified School District, and Pamela Morrison of Sacramento City College for helping us put this event together. Also thanks to our event volunteers, Nicole Grant-Krieg and Alan Young. And of course, Thanks to you for listening. Find out when our next event is by going to our website, californiagroundbreakers.org.